Good evening. Thankful for the presence of everyone that's here tonight and just want to encourage us to be praying about a few things. I know last week we had an entire evening service dedicated toward equipped, but we are about <coughs> 20 days out now. And so make sure to be praying about that. We're excited about all that's coming up with it, but just be keeping it in your prayers. Have a prayer every day about equipped and keep the whole event in mind as you go throughout the next few weeks. Be praying for Neil and Kathy. They're both in Oklahoma. She's doing some teaching. He's preaching a gospel meeting there. And I know they would appreciate our prayers in that effort. And also, as was mentioned, the folks in Nashville who are still reeling after the tragedy that was there. And so let's be petitioning God on their behalf. When you get to the Old Testament, Saul is Israel's first king. And after several repeated instances of disobedience on his part, God decides he's going to do something different. He's going to have a king after his own heart. First Samuel 13 and verse 14. God could see what people couldn't see. And so God says he was looking at the heart of this next person. And as we know, the next king of Israel would be nobody else other than King David. David's known as a giant slayer and as a man who slayed his ten thousands. And David quickly ascended to favor in Israel. The people, they just love David. Even Saul's son, though Saul was the king, David and Jonathan built a great friendship. And the Bible says their friendship surpassed that between women. They were just that close. They loved one another. But on the contrast, Saul hated David. He spent the majority of his life chasing down David in an attempt to kill David and really to snuff out his life. And finally, God had enough of Saul. And the book of First Samuel ends in chapter 30 with the death of Saul and his sons at the hand of the Philistines. When you get to 2 Samuel, it's really about the rise and the establishment of David's kingdom. David first is king in Hebron for seven years, and then eventually he's king over all Israel and begins to build the Davidic dynasty. He'd be king in Israel for 40 years. And you just read about his battles, his victories, his defeats. When you get to 2 Samuel chapter 8 and verse 14, it says God gave David success wherever he went. He defeated the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Moabites and the Syrians. Second Samuel chapter eight and chapter 10 talk about the great things that David did in securing victory and establishing his throne. But tucked in the middle of those chapters is a story about a man whose name is very hard to pronounce. And I was not about to do that to Harold tonight. So a man by the name of Mephibosheth and the things that David did for him. I hope as we study this text tonight, we'll learn something about this little known Bible character, this Bible story, but also that we'll see ourselves in the story as a result. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn it to Second Samuel chapter nine. And let's notice the story or the account of the man we know as Mephibosheth. Second Samuel chapter nine and verse one begins by saying, as David was enjoying peace in his reign, he looked out and he wanted to do kindness to somebody. And so he said, is there anybody else left from the house of Saul that I might show him kindness? For the sake of Jonathan, he wanted to do a good deed for somebody based on his relationship with Jonathan. He runs into a man by the name of Ziba. Ziba is one of Saul's servants when Saul was king. And he says to Ziba in verse three, he reiterates the question. Is there anybody from the house of Saul that I can show kindness to the kindness of God for the sake of Jonathan? Ziba says in verse three, there is. But he's crippled in his feet. David says in verse four, where is he? And he tells him he's in a place called Lodeber at the house of a man by the name of Makir. And he goes and he sends for him. When Mephibosheth gets there, verse six, David calls him by name, Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth says, I'm your servant. David has great news for him in verse seven. (coughs) He says, because of Jonathan, your father, I'm going to show you kindness and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth can't believe it. In verse eight, he says, why would you have regard or care about a dead dog? In verse eight, like me, David just ignores that. 
He calls for Ziba again in verse nine down through verse 11. And he tells Ziba, the man that he sent to orchestrate this whole thing, you make sure that he gets all of Saul's property back. And because Mephibosheth is crippled, I want you and your servants and your sons to till his ground and take care of his property as long as he lives. And David reminds Mephibosheth again in verse 12 and verse 13, you will always eat at my table. You'll be in Jerusalem all your days and I'll see to your needs. It's really a great story of grace and kindness on behalf of David, something he didn't have to do. And if we just rehearse the story, that would be enough. But tonight what I want us to do is just to march down through 2 Samuel chapter 9 and notice what we learn, not really about David so much, but about the subject of grace. What do we learn about grace in this passage that helps us to appreciate it as New Testament Christians? Six things briefly, and then we'll extend heaven's invitation. Here we go. Number one, the first thing we learn about grace from this story is that grace is not based on the recipient. Second Samuel chapter nine and verse one and in verse three, David asked the same questions two times. If you notice, David says, is there anybody left from the house of Saul that I might show kindness for the sake of Jonathan? It's really not about Mephibosheth. It's not that he earns this grace. David does this simply out of the kindness of his heart. If you're taking notes and you go back in the Old Testament, there are several times where it's repeated that David and Jonathan entered a covenant. So first Samuel 18 and verse three. First Samuel chapter 20, verse 13 and 15, chapter 20, verse 16 and 17 and chapter 20 and verse 42. David and Jonathan have a conversation. And what Jonathan says to David is, I know you're going to be the next king. And when you are, don't forget me and don't cut off my family lineage. And though Jonathan and his dad Saul had been dead for a long time at this point, David remembers the oath that he made. And based on that vow, he keeps his word and he just looks out and says, is there anybody from Jonathan's family that I can show kindness to? And so he does. When Mephibosheth finally gets into the palace and David starts lavishing all these blessings on him, it's not because he deserved it or because he earned it. It was because of something that had nothing to do with him whatsoever. And that's the way grace always works. Grace is not about the person receiving it, being deserving. It's about the one administering it and saying, I want to be kind and gracious towards you, not based on your goodness, but instead based on mine. You know, God had to drill this into the heads of Old Testament Israel and Deuteronomy seven, verse seven and eight and Deuteronomy nine, four and five. God says you're going to receive the land of Canaan, but it's for two reasons, none of which have anything to do with you. One, I made promises to your fathers long before you. And two, the people in this land are wicked and sinful. And that's why I'm driving them out of the land. Israel, you're receiving the land of Canaan out of sheer grace, God's goodness, and not yours. Because grace always operates on the goodness of the giver and not the one that's receiving it. Mephibosheth would spend the rest of his days in David's palace as a son and as a servant. But it wasn't because he was good enough or because he could honor. He could raise his hands and say he deserved it because of his honor. It was because of the type of man that David was. In Numbers chapter 30 and verse two, the Bible says, when you make a vow to God, defer not to pay. Be sure that you keep your word. If you vow anything to anybody, you make sure to follow through. And that's what David's done. David made a promise to his dad. And guess what? He intended to keep it. Hold your hand in 2 Samuel 9 and go over to Ephesians chapter 2, because right before Paul writes one of the greatest passages in the New Testament on grace, he reminds us of this principle that grace is not something we deserve. It's not based on us. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Paul says, and you has he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, where in times past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once walked and had our conduct in times past. And we were by nature the children of wrath, just like the rest. 
Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says our guilt was great. But notice Ephesians 2, 4 through 9. God's grace was greater. But God, who is rich in his mercy for his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. That's what made the difference. The same thing that's true about Mephibosheth is true for us. We didn't deserve God's grace. He just gave it to us. Mephibosheth comes into David's family. He comes into the palace and David says, hey, I've got great things in store for you. You're going to eat at my table for the rest of your life. And every day Mephibosheth wakes up in the palace. Here's what he knows. He knows the only reason why he's there is because of something that was worked out long before he ever came into the arrangement. Look at 2 Samuel 9 and notice verse 1 and verse 3 again, though, because it's interesting that nobody has to remind David or wrestle it out of his hands. He poses the question twice, doesn't he? Is there anybody around here that I can show goodness or kindness to for the sake of Jonathan? What do we mean sometimes? We'll say this about somebody. The money's burning a hole in his pocket. What does that mean? It means he's about to be broke soon, but it also means that he can't wait to spend it or she can't wait to spend it. It's just burning a hole. And when you think about grace and mercy, you could say about David here is burning a hole in his heart. He just can't wait to share it. He's just looking for an opportunity. I wonder if somebody from Jonathan's family line has survived so that I can lavish it on him. Paul says this about God in First Timothy one and verse 14. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ was exceedingly abundant in faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. The grace and mercy of God is overflowing and abundant. First Peter one and verse three, God just bubbles forth with it and he can't wait to lavish it on us. And when we receive it, it's not because of anything good we've done, but it's because of who he is. Now, here's number two. Grace is impartial. Stay with me in Second Samuel chapter nine and notice that grace shows no respect of person. David says, hey, is there anybody left from the house of Jonathan that I may show kindness? What does Ziba say in verse three? David says, yes, there's a son of Jonathan, but he's what? He's crippled in his feet. Don't just pass over that. It's a little parenthetical. No, Ziba was trying to alert David and say something along the lines of, yeah, there is a son. But are you sure you want to do it for him because he's crippled as if that would change David's mind? David was set on doing this. He was set on being good because grace is impartial. What does that mean? Grace doesn't show favoritism. Grace doesn't care about your face or your fingers or your feet. Grace it's for everybody. When he says Ziba is handicapped, this is if David is supposed to say, well, well, since he's handicapped, we can't go through with it. David ignores that. And you know what he says in verse four? Where is he? Just go and get him because I plan to do something great for him. And don't you know that's how God's grace operates? It's impartial. Titus two and verse 11 says, for the grace of God that brings salvation it's appeared to all men. Isaiah 50 and verse 12, God says, my salvation will be for all nations throughout all the earth. Grace doesn't care about the past or what people have done. God's grace simply invites, regardless of what their spiritual resume says. And we learn from Mephibosheth that his handicap wouldn't hinder him. God had told his people in the old law, Leviticus 19, 14 and 15, never be prejudiced toward handicapped people. And David gets the message. David says, I don't care if he's handicapped. I want to help him. And so go and get them. Lady Justice is seen in our courtrooms throughout our nation. This image of her, she has these symbols in her hands that are supposed to signify various things about justice and fairness. It's not peculiar to us. Similar images have been found in Greece, Mesopotamia and in Rome. But all of those images, they mean something. The sword that she wields It's about her power. It says authority. And it also says with the sword, she can cut through all the obstacles to get to the truth. The balance scale suggests that she can sift through the evidence and make sure that she can see what's right and what's wrong. And of course, the blindfold suggests 
she doesn't need to see those individuals that stand before her. Beauty nor horridness can sway her in any way. She's concerned with the truth and she knows it when she hears it. She doesn't have to see because justice is impartial. And if we had a picture up tonight of Lady Grace, she would adorn the very same blindfold as a necessary accessory because Grace doesn't care what you look like. Notice how many times in the Bible God reminds us that he does not show favoritism. When Peter came to the household of Cornelius, you remember what he said in Acts 10, 34 and 35. I perceive that God's no respecter of person, but in every nation, it doesn't matter where you're from. He that does good and works righteousness is accepted with him. Or Romans 2 and verse 11, Paul just says it. God is no respecter of persons. Don't hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ with favoritism. There's none with him. James 2 and verse 1. Ephesians 6, 9, Paul says, masters, stop your threatening because you serve a master in heaven and there's no partiality with him. What does that mean? It means God treats everybody the same. How many people hear about the grace of God and they start out like Ziba? David says, is there anybody from the household of Saul that I can show grace to? Yes, but he's crippled. You say, hey, God wants to save you. I want to invite you to worship. And they start in with their crippled, their crippled nature, with their handicaps. Yeah, but I'm pretty banged up. Listen, there's a lot to this story. You really don't want to. I mean, I've really messed up bad. I've done a lot of it. And God, just like David here, just says, where are you? I know you've seen this in the movies before. Something happens, a terrible tragedy strikes somebody's child or something like that. Parents rush into the hospital as soon as they get there. A doctor meets them in the waiting room or something like that. And they say, it's bad. You really don't want to go back there. What do the parents always say? I want to see him or her. Doesn't matter how bad it is. That's my child. I want to see him. And listen. When David says, I want to do good to somebody from the household of Jonathan, there is no malady. There is no handicap that can stop him from seeing them. And the same thing's true with us and God. Grace is impartial. When God says whosoever wills, that's exactly what he means. Romans 10, 13. And nothing can change his mind about that. Our responsibility as seed sowers is to remember this. God doesn't want us to size the people up. He just wants us to go out and scatter the seed. Jesus says in Mark 4, 27, the sower goes out and sows the word and it comes up and it grows and he knows not how. (coughs) That means people are going to receive it that we wouldn't think would. It'll do things in people's lives that we couldn't imagine because grace reaches places that we can't fathom. Sometimes grace is impartial. Here's number three. Grace removes fear and restores status. In ancient empires, when one king came into power over another, the first thing he would do is kill all of the family members of the other guy. Because he wouldn't want anybody to rise up and be a rival to his throne. Don't you know when David calls for Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth thinks he's about to die today. David's going to ruin everybody. In fact, it's possible that where he's hiding in Lodeber at the house of Machir, he's probably just terrified and hoping to eke out an existence in isolation from everybody for the rest of his days. Because the last thing he wants to do is to be found out by David. He probably believes if David ever realizes I'm alive, he'll kill me. But notice the text. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 9 and verse 7. He falls before David in verse 6 and he says, I'm your servant. David says, no, more than that. David says, I haven't called you in here to kill you. I've called you in here to crown you. Verse 7, you'll always eat at my table because of my relationship with your father, Jonathan. Grace always restores status and it removes fear. What does David tell him in verse 7? Do not fear. You don't have anything to be afraid about. I'm going to bless you. Verse 10 and verse 13, he reminds him of this same thing. You're going to eat at my table. You're going to be blessed. You'll be here. Don't be afraid. I've come to elevate you, not to ruin you. And don't you know God's grace has done the same thing with us? Paul says we have a great high priest who has passed into the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our profession. 
We don't have a high priest who can't be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. And because of that, we can boldly approach the throne of grace. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Perfect love casts out fear. 1 John 4, 17 and 18. And we haven't received the spirit of fear, but of power and love and of a sound mind. What happens with Mephibosheth is exactly what happens with you and with me. We come into the presence of God based on what Jesus has done. And Jesus says there's no need to be afraid. But more than that, your status has been elevated. Mephibosheth thinks this is the day that he'll die. And this is actually the day when he'll be promoted. God does something great for him and blesses him in a mighty way. There's a story told in a book about our attitudes. A man wrote a book, Carl Menninger, and he talked about how some people have what he calls a negativistic attitude. These are the people, Menninger says, they always say no. Everything's no with them. No, no, no. Before you even ask them, they always say no. They don't give loans. They don't give second chances and they don't give grace. And as he's making this point about our attitude in this book about vital balance and the need to be more than just a no person, he tells this story about Thomas Jefferson. One day, Jefferson and some of his his countrymen were riding across town on horseback and they came to a swollen river. And as they came there, there was a man trapped on one side who couldn't who couldn't get across to the other side. And so he let some of the other guys go across first. And finally, he asked Jefferson for a ride. And Jefferson says, sure, put him on his horse and got him across to the other side. When he got across, a fellow traveler said to him, what's wrong with you? You actually let all those other guys go by and you thought it'd be good to ask the president for a ride. He said, the president. I didn't know he was the president. All I know is that in every man's face, there's a no and a yes. And all those other guys had no's written across their face. And in his face, I saw yes. Don't you know when Mephibosheth looks at David, you know what he sees? He sees the face of a man who's a yes. You look in the face of God and you know what you're going to find. You are going to look into the face of a God who says yes. Second Corinthians one and verse 20 says all of the promises of God find their yes and their amen in him. That's who God is. And his kindness and graciousness, he says, I've come to elevate your status and fix things that are broken because that's who I am. David knew this well. When David falls in his sin with Bathsheba, Psalm 51, 11 through 12, he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Put me back in the position I was in to begin with. And that's what God does. Grace always removes fear and says, you've got nothing to be afraid of. Can you picture the scene at David's table? Just think about this. Here comes Solomon. It's time for dinner. He's left the study. He's been studying all day. And here comes handsome Absalom. The Bible says nobody looked better than Absalom in all of Israel. His beautiful daughter Tamar comes in and even crafty Amnon and maybe perhaps Joab is in. After some military planning and strategizing, they're all around the table. And then there's this clumping sound, thump, thump, thump. And in comes a man either clumping along or being carried along. And Mephibosheth sits at the table with all of these royal people. And he doesn't have to worry. He's never going to wake up a day in his life and be told, you know what? We were just joking. You've got to get out. They're not plotting to kill him or to get rid of him. He sits at the table. And though they're not related by blood, he has as much right to be at the table as any of the others. Because his fear is removed. His status is restored. And that's where he sits. The grace of God does that for us. It says, you know what? You don't deserve to sit here. You don't deserve to be here. And yet here you are. Number next, grace results in homage and humility. When David says to Mephibosheth, you'll always be at my table. Notice verse seven, verse eight. Mephibosheth says, why do you pay regard to such a dead dog as I? And I know we love our dogs, but, you know, in the ancient world, dogs weren't a man's best friend. 
Whenever somebody calls themselves a dog in the Bible, it's a term of debasement. It's a term to say that they're lowly and that they're unwanted. In fact, in the New Testament, Paul calls false teachers dogs. Titus chapter three and verse two or Philippians three and verse two. It's always a term that's derogatory in nature. Mephibosheth says, what am I doing here that you would actually care about me? Because grace reminds us that we don't deserve it. Hold your hand in 2 Samuel 9 and go over to 2 Samuel chapter 7 and notice David saying this same thing when God blesses him. In 2 Samuel 7, once God tells him, I'm going to build a dynasty in your family and do great things, David has the same shock. 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 18, what does David say? He says, God, who am I and what is my family that you brought me this far? David can't believe it. He's just as shocked as Mephibosheth. You know why? Grace always knocks a man to his knees. Grace always says, I've got no business being here. How could you do this for me and to me and through me? And that's Mephibosheth's response. Grace doesn't say I deserve it and I want more of it. Grace says, I can't believe you showered me with this blessing. Corrie Ten Boom did a lot of great things. She helped a lot of people, especially Jews coming out of the Holocaust. And one time in an interview, somebody said to her, Miss Corey, do you ever struggle with humility? I mean, does pride ever kind of get in the way and you start to think more of yourself? And she said, listen. In Matthew 21, 1 through 11, when Jesus rode into that donkey on rode on the donkey into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and all of the people were waving their branches and throwing their clothes on the ground and quoting the Old Testament and saying, Hosanna in the highest. Glory be to God in the highest. She said, do you think for one minute that that donkey thought any of that was for him? She said, listen, I just want to be the donkey that God rides on his glory. And if every one of us could have that heart disposition, that's what grace does. Grace says, I really don't deserve to be here. Whatever God does for me or to me or through me is actually to his glory and his benefit. Nobody ever has to know my name. I just really want to serve God. That's exactly what happens with Mephibosheth. He's shocked by the goodness of God and what David does for him. And he says, I'm a dog. I don't deserve it. What does Paul say? I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant abundant upon me in faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. He couldn't believe it. And we need to be knocked to our knees with the grace of God and say to ourselves, how did I get this far? God's given me far more than I deserve. I've got no business being here. I know where I came from and what I deserve. It's merely by the goodness of God. Imagine Mephibosheth in David's hallways one more time. And imagine some visitors, some dignitaries from another country coming by or maybe some people in the military and they bump into Mephibosheth and they look at him and they know he's out of place and he doesn't belong here. What would he do if they said, how did you get here? What would be his response? You know what he would say as quickly as he can. He would find David. He would point to David and he would say, I'm here because of him. And in the kingdom of God now and in the eternal kingdom of God there, if somebody ever bumps into you and says, what are you doing here? You know what we should do? We should find Jesus as soon as we can and point to him and say, I'm here because of him. Neither is there salvation in any other. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Acts 4 and verse 12. He's the only reason why we'll be at the table. We don't deserve it. It cultivates humility to say, I know my place and I know what I deserve. Here's number five. Grace exceeds our expectations. It would have been enough for Mephibosheth just not to die. I mean, he just really wanted to survive and not be killed. And David says, there's more in store for you. Not only will you not be killed, but I'm going to give you all your father's property back, everything from the house of Saul, and you'll be eating at my table all the days of your life. God had more in store for him than he imagined. 
You and I serve the God of much more. Grace always goes further than we can imagine. Think in the Gospels of how many times Jesus shocked people and he says, hey, I've got great things in store for you, but it's more than even that. He saw Nathaniel and he says to Nathaniel in John chapter one and verse 50, do you believe because I said I saw you under the fig tree? Nathaniel, you'll see greater things than these. He got to the grave of Martha and Lazarus's Martha and Mary's brother, Lazarus. You remember? And Martha says, I know he'll rise at the last day. And Jesus says, Martha, didn't you believe when I told you that if you believe, you'll see the glory of God? John 11 and verse 40. The thief was just hoping to make it on the other side. He says, will you remember me in your kingdom? Jesus says, I've got great news for you. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus is often shocking people by saying, oh, I'm good, but I'm even better than you thought. I'm the God of much more. Mephibosheth just wants to eke out an existence and just survive maybe a few meals at the palace. Just let me live my life in low deeper and never hurt me or do any harm. And David says, you've got no idea. Grace doesn't operate that way. You serve the God who does exceedingly abundantly above more than you ask or even think. Ephesians three and verse 20. He's the God of much more. Grace always exceeds our expectations. We sometimes sell it short and sort of shoot low and say, well, if I could just get this little crumb. And God says, I prepared a feast. Mephibosheth doesn't deserve to be there, but still he is. He's been invited by God through David to see the kindness that he doesn't deserve. And David shocks him. You think about our lives and what we deserve and where we deserve to be and what God does for us. And it goes far beyond what we can even imagine. Second Corinthians eight and verse nine says about Jesus's sacrifice for us. You know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he were rich, yet for your sake, he became poor, that you through his poverty might be made rich. God does for us more than we could ever dream and more than we deserve. And here's the sixth and final point tonight. Jesus Christ is the epitome of grace. When you open up your Bible to the New Testament, you can read Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And never one time will you read of Jesus actually saying the words grace. He never says it. But there's hardly a scene in his life when he doesn't show it. When he comes onto the scene, John says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. John 1:14, And we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. The law was given by Moses, John 1 and verse 17, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the epitome of grace, and every picture of it that we see in the Bible points us back to him. He's the gracious one that offers us an opportunity and looks out over the whole world and invites everybody to his table. John 3 and verse 16, there's no favoritism because every human being is his favorite. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that he could save the world. He's the God that says, you know what? I know you don't deserve it, but I welcome you to my table anyway. And I'll shed my blood for the remission of everybody's sins. Matthew 26 and verse 28. He's the God that elevates us and invites us to sit with him and to dine at his table forever. Revelation 19 and verse 9. Jesus is the epitome of God's grace. And I hope you can see yourself by now in 2 Samuel chapter 9. Because this isn't really just the story about Mephibosheth. I don't know what your birth certificate says, but tonight your name's Mephibosheth. Every one of us. Just think about it. We're just like him. We're crippled by our sins. And when he calls us, he calls us in with the gospel. And we believe that we'll be crushed because we're enemies to his kingdom, to his reign and to his throne. And instead of us dying, he does. He invites us and he says, you'll always sit at my table. We were just hoping to escape hell and to not be condemned. He says, I've got great news for you. Not only is hell not in your future, but you'll reign with me and you'll be crowned. Ephesians 2, 6 and 7, Romans 8 and verse 18. But more than that, when you go into the banquet, 
You see all of these people that you never thought you'd be sitting with. And there's Esther and Ruth and Abraham and David and Sarah and Paul. And we're all there, not because of anything good that we've done, but because of the goodness of God that was worked out before the foundation of the world and what he promised to do for us in Christ Jesus. The Old Testament teaches us many lessons, but it ultimately points us past the stories that we read to the true hero of the Bible, who is Jesus Christ. The story of Mephibosheth is about a crippled man who doesn't deserve the goodness he receives. But we shouldn't skip this story because that's actually the story of the whole Bible. We are crippled by our own choices, by our own sins. And in the end, the Bible says we receive a goodness that we don't deserve to receive. The Bible begins by telling us that Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. And because of their sin, they hid from God and they were cut off from God's presence and from access to the tree of life. And the Bible story comes full circle because God loves trees. They're cut off because their their desire to eat from the wrong tree. But in the middle of the Bible, Jesus dies on a tree for our sins. And then at the end of the Bible, the story comes full circle. And John says, everybody who wants to can take and eat from the tree of life freely and you can be welcomed at my table. Mephibosheth is a man who doesn't deserve to be where he is. And that's what grace is all about. It's about unmerited favor that God extends to the whole world. And perhaps tonight somebody needs to lay hold on grace for the very first time. We'd love to be witnesses to you doing that, obeying the gospel, believing that Jesus Christ is the son of God. Your wounds don't run him off. If anything, they intensify his love and he welcomes you. Maybe you've already done that and you need the prayers of the church. We're going to sing a song to encourage one another tonight. If this is your invitation, come now as together we stand and as we sing.